Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Covent Garden service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Uh, good afternoon, West End Service. How are you doing? Good. Uh, my first time here for a while. Uh, thanks to all of you who asked how my sabbatical went over the summer. Uh, I don't have time to share everything that I thought and read and prayed about during that time, but in short, it was absolutely fantastic. And uh, I was really excited about the autumn when I went off to the summer. It's an autumn series through the Old Testament book of Proverbs, which is an ancient book packed full of practical wisdom to help us live, hopefully, the wisest life possible. Uh, that was until I returned from sabbatical and saw which topics I had been allocated. Uh, clearly angry and bitter at my extended time away over the summer, uh, the team have asked me to kick off by speaking on the dangers of sexual temptation. Oh, happy day. I see no one wanted to whoop that one. There we go. One less, one less whoop than Sutton. So uh, if you have a Bible, please turn to Proverbs chapter 5. And uh, uh, just to say before we read together, sometimes if you read through Proverbs, the language can appear a little sexist. Uh, for example, in today's passage, temptation is pictured as a woman, as an adulteress. And this is simply because this is a father writing to his son. And so we just need to remember, if we ever see a gender-specific term, this is actually something that applies to all of us. So with that said, Proverbs chapter 5, and let's begin to read at verse 1. Words are on the screen. This is what it says. My son, pay attention to my wisdom, turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she doesn't know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Don't turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Don't go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. Down to verse 18. Instead, may your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. Here endeth the reading. Well, uh, if you are new to Christchurch London this afternoon, welcome. <laughs> Really great to have you with us. How glad must you be that you picked this as your first Sunday? Why on earth, in a termly series on living the wisest life possible, are we devoting an entire talk to the dangers of sexual temptation? I want to give you three reasons. Firstly, somewhat obviously, the Bible talks about it. Uh, not just Proverbs 5, most of Proverbs 6, pretty much all of chapter 7, and the rest of Proverbs is littered with a whole load of other references. This book of wisdom, around about 10% of it, is devoted to this topic. Clearly it was important to Solomon, and therefore it should be important to us as well. The second reason we need to talk about sex is the world is talking about it. You don't need me to remind you of that, but Proverbs acknowledges this. Proverbs 7.12 describes temptation's feet as never staying at home. Now in the streets, now in the squares, at every corner, temptation lurks. Sexual temptation is everywhere. 
a few months ago, I came across a series of talks given by a guy called John Tyson, who leads a large church in New York. He's actually a good friend of us here at Christchurch. He also took a sabbatical over the summer and went round the world to various revival sites to pray for a great move of God across the earth. I used my sabbatical to go to Disney World. That's the difference between him and me. Uh, but in this series on sex and relationships, in his opening talk, he came across this quote in an article in Vanity Fair magazine on Tinder and hookup culture. And this was from a leading researcher who said this. There have been two major transitions in heterosexual mating in the last four million years. The first was around 10 to 15,000 years ago in the agricultural revolution when we became less migratory and more settled, leading to the establishment of marriage as a cultural contract. And the second major transition is with the rise of the internet. The internet has changed everything in this area and therefore it has taken temptation to a whole new level. It's now on every phone, within arm's reach, in every home, whenever people want to access it. I think sometimes statistics in this area can wash over us, so I won't give too many. Let me just give you a few. I came across a report by the NSPCC a couple of weeks ago that estimated in every primary school in Britain, at least one child has re received indecent, sexually explicit content from an adult online. Every primary school in Britain. On average, a child's first exposure to pornography comes at just 11 years old. One recent study of 18 to 30-year-olds, that's most people in this room, in fact, we'll come back to that, actually, teenagers, 80% of teens, say they regularly come across pornography. 79% say they have no one to help them with it. If that is true, what is happening to the thinking of a whole generation? Of 18 to 30-year-olds, one recent Danish study estimated that 98% of men and 80% of women had seen pornography. If that is true, if that is true, that is extraordinary. Appro approximately 35% of all downloaded content online is sexual in nature. And sex is the number one searched item on the internet. And this is just a few stats on sex and the internet. Now in the streets, now in the squares, at every corner temptation lurks. And the problem with many of these messages all around us on sex is many of them are so believable. They're so compelling. If you read through Proverbs, temptation is described as captivating, seductive, persuasive, alluring. It has a smooth tongue. In other words, every single person in this room has a worldview when it comes to sex and sexual ethics. Proverbs warns us we could be completely and utterly duped because these messages are just so convincing. We could be wrong and we don't know it. And here's what I found interesting. Many of these messages around us on sex, they can have religious packaging around it. Proverbs 7.14, temptation says, hey, I've got fellowship offerings at home. Today I've fulfilled my vows. Yeah, I'm following God. I wonder how many of us have developed our worldview in this area because this Christian celebrity said this. Or that Christian leader said that. Or more likely, I've got these friends and they say they follow God and li they're living this way and seem to be having a great life. I'll just incorporate that in my worldview as well. Proverbs says, be very, very careful because it might look utterly compelling, but it could be completely and totally wrong. We need to talk about sex because the Bible talks about it, because the world is talking about it. And the third reason we need to talk about sex is because the consequences of going wrong in this area can be utterly ruinous. Let me just read some of the warnings in Proverbs. These aren't even all of them. 
If we go wrong in this area, Proverbs says, it leads to bitterness. It leads to death and the grave. It takes us on a crooked path. We lose our best strength to others. Strangers end up feeding on our wealth. This affects us financially if we go wrong in this area. At the end of our life, oh, we groan. Our flesh and body end up being spent. Going wrong in this area brings us to the brink of utter ruin in front of everybody else. It's like a public embarrassment to going wrong in this area. We get ensnared. We get trapped by the cords of sin. We die for lack of discipline. Into chapter six, we get reduced to a loaf of bread. Temptation preys upon our very life. We scoop fire into our lap. No one goes unpunished. In other words, Proverbs says, if we go wrong in this area, it is impossible to avoid the consequences. We destroy ourselves. Blows and disgrace are our lot. This one scares me. It says, our shame will never be wiped away. Wow. Into chapter seven, we're like an ox going to slaughter, a deer stepping into a noose. It will cost us our life. Many of the victims temptation has brought down, her slain are a mighty throng. Now, it's not my desire to create an unnecessarily heavy moment in the talk. I'm just reading the book of Proverbs. Blame Proverbs, not me. But I was just struck as I read this book by both the volume but also the force of these words. And I felt like I would be discharging my responsibility if I didn't warn us in the strongest possible terms if we go wrong in this area, it could ruin us. And without wishing to make a heavy moment even heavier, I imagine that there are some people in our church family, certainly listening online, who know exactly what I am talking about because they have been on the receiving end of inappropriate behavior in this area. I'm sure many of us have seen the news reports over the course of the last year. An increasing number of allegations against people usually in positions of power who have abused that power in order to sexually mistreat and exploit other people. It's fair to say a large proportion of the people mistreated in this area are women. And the Me Too movement has exposed just how widespread this kind of behavior is, not just in Hollywood, but in government and education, in business, in the workplace, and I am gutted to say all too frequently even in the church with people carrying spiritual responsibility who have abused their position of power. Now, to be honest, I just want to acknowledge as a white bloke, in some ways, I feel a bit unqualified to speak on this. And I'm sure I'll miss some stuff out and I probably won't get the tone right in places, but I felt I wanted to say something. I felt like I wanted to acknowledge the pain. I felt like I wanted to say, we are so, so sorry for the undeserved hurt and pain that some people, maybe even in our church family, have experienced, to say that it is not right and it has no place in the kingdom of Jesus. I felt like I should add this. Maybe some of us have been negatively affected indirectly by our over-sexualized culture. I always feel a bit embarrassed sharing this, but I've put this onto the steps videos now, so it's on video for everyone to see. One of my enduring memories as a teenager was regularly looking into a mirror at my reflection and saying to myself, you are ugly and I hate you. Because that's how a culture obsessed with sex and therefore by definition with image and appearance made me feel. 
Now, I can honestly say, wonderfully, many years later, I am totally free of that. Jesus has changed my life. I not only know how much God loves me, I love me too. But I mention it because I just wonder if there are some people in our church family who can relate. And you feel the burdens and the pressures pushed upon you by a culture that is obsessed with sex and therefore with image and appearance. And if anyone has been affected indirectly in this area, negatively in any way, we want this to be a safe place where you can open up and where you can talk some more. If you have no one else to talk to, come talk to your service leaders. You can email pastoral support at christchurchlondon.org. We have teams in each of our services. And maybe we as a family can help you take the next steps to healing and wholeness. Jesus wants to heal us and to restore us, and to remind us of his unfailing love for us, to set us free from any sense of guilt and inadequacy and shame. It has no place in his kingdom. We need to talk about sex because the Bible talks about it. We need to talk about sex because the world is talking about it, and many of those messages are wrong. And we need to talk about sex because if we do go wrong in this area, the consequences can be disastrous. Okay, heavy moment over. So what do we do? How do we avoid going wrong in this area? Well, in that talk that I alluded to earlier by John Tyson, in that series of talks, he outlines three areas where we can trip up in this area. Uh, He defines them as pride, lust, and loneliness. And I want to take them each very briefly in turn. Firstly, pride. We fight pride with humility. The first way we avoid going wrong in this area is through humility. I shared this uh, many years ago now. Um, This year is the 12-year anniversary of the moment I decided to propose to my now wife, Joy. Uh, I planned a really romantic trip to Le Paris, Le Tour Eiffel, Love Romance. I had an engagement ring in my pocket. I nicked her passport. I booked tickets on the Eurostar. It was going to be a magical day. And we arrived at Waterloo Station, where the Eurostar went from in those days, very early in the morning, went through security, and had a little bit of time to kill. So we thought, let's grab a coffee, and there was no one else around. So Joy sat at a nearby table, and I'm just at this coffee bar, kind of working out what to order. And true story, uh, suddenly, standing next to me, I look to my right, and there is the film star, Kira Knightley. And I, I kind of like mouth to Joy, it's Kira Knightley, it's Kira Knightley. And uh, there's no one else there, so I kind of wander over, it's Kira Knightley, it's Kira Knightley. And if you've met my wife, Joy, she's got a really high cringe factor. And she just looked me dead in the eye and she said, just play it cool, okay? Just don't do anything to embarrass me. Be cool. Play it cool. Don't make a scene. Be cool. I was like, all right. I, I know how to be cool, you know? I, uh, I spent half my sabbatical learning how to do the floss. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm growing. You know, I'm really cool. So... Uh, I, uh, I left Joy at a table, and I kind of wandered back to Kira, being really cool, okay? <laughs> and out of nowhere, this thought popped into my head. Uh, to this day, I don't know where from. It must have been from the devil. Um, <laughs> hang on. Hang on. I'm standing next to Kira Knightley, and I've got an engagement ring in my pocket. I, Andy Tilsley, I could propose to Kira Knightley. Well, those kind of opportunities don't come along every day. Now, um, just to reassure you, I did not get down on one knee and propose to Kira Knightley. I'm way out her league. <laughs> but um, here's the point. Here's the point. This is the day I am supposed to be proposing to the love of my life, to the person 
I supposedly want to spend the rest of my life with. And a thought has come into my head about proposing to another woman that I've never met. (laughs) Now, in some ways, that's a bit of a stupid example. But in some ways, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. Because actually, in our over-sexualized culture, our minds get pelted with so many messages on sex that our thought life can get polluted with a whole load of junk. And if we think that junk doesn't affect the way that we live, quite frankly, we are kidding ourselves. And one of the main ways Proverbs warns us to avoid going wrong in this area, it's like, if you know where temptation is, just steer clear of it. Get away from those kind of thoughts. Keep to a path far from her. If you know where temptation is, find a different route home from work. Why would I do that? Here's the reason. It's because I know that I'm weak. I know that if I saunter down that road... I'm likely to fall, so I'm going to steer well clear. I came across this quote from an atheist author called Tanahasi Coates. Uh, you may have read some of his stuff. He said this. He's not a Christian speaking. He says, I've been with my spouse almost 15 years. In those years, I've never been with anyone but the mother of my son. But that is not because I'm an especially good person. In fact, I am wholly in possession of an unimaginably and filthy mongrel mind. But I am also a dude who believes in guardrails. I don't believe in getting in the moment and then exercising willpower. I believe in avoiding the moment. I believe in being absolutely clear with myself about why I am having a second drink and why I'm not, why I am going to the party and why I'm not. I believe the battle is lost at happy hour, not at the hotel. I am not a good man, but I am prepared to be an honourable one. Goodness, those are humble words. That's a guy aware of his weakness. Am I? you you know there are some movies I have decided I won't watch that because it's wrong to watch the movie no because I know I'm weak there's some publications I won't read some conversations I won't indulge because it's wrong not necessarily no but because I know I'm weak when Joy and I were dating we thought there's going to be some situations where we're not going to be alone together because it's wrong to be alone together when you're dating no because we're aware of our weakness And if anyone is listening to this thinking, you know what, I'm immune to all this. You know, I can watch sexually explicit content and, you know, I'm totally immune. It doesn't leave me looking at other people as products to gratify my desires. If we think we're immune to this, Proverbs has a word for us. We've got the wise person and the foolish person. Another character is introduced in Proverbs 7. It's the simple person. We're called naive. We're called gullible. Humility recognizes, I'm weak, I could mess up, so I'm going to play it safe. And just to park on humility for a moment, humility is not just about acknowledging my weakness in the present, but also about confessing my mistakes from the past. One of the books uh, I read a number of months ago was Mary Beard's brilliant History of the Roman Empire, SPQR. And one of the things she said which interested me is, when the Romans conquered Britain, Britain's now conquered, many of us Brits, we started wearing loads of togas and other Roman gear. Well, Tacitus, the historian, looked at us Brits and he said this, they called it in their ignorance civilization, but it was in reality part of their enslavement. All these Brits are going around, yeah, I'm dressing like the Romans, I'm wearing all these cool togas. Tacitus looks at that and says, it it just makes it easier for Rome to control you. You just become more of a slave. The translation to our culture is this, it's like our culture has been conquered by an overemphasis on sex and relationships. 
And it is oh so easy for me, metaphorically speaking, to wear the clothes and attitudes of my culture. I've got all these contemporary views. I see things exactly the same way as my culture. Tacitus would look at us and say, be careful. Because you might think it's civilization. Maybe in reality, you're just more of a slave. Humility recognizes, you know what, in all honesty, here and here and here, I have worn the clothes of my culture and I want to confess it because I've become a slave and I want to be free. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals their sins doesn't prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. This is why I love Alcoholics Anonymous. It's why I love the steps course that we run here at Christchurch. We've kind of created this course. It's exactly the same 12 steps as AA, but we can just apply it to whatever else that we are struggling with. That's why I love the men's recovery course and the women's recovery course that we mentioned earlier, because they're just drenched in humility. Hi, my name's Andy. And here and here and here, I've worn the clothes of my culture and I have become a slave and I want to confess it because I want to be free. The first way we avoid going wrong in this area is we fight pride with humility. Is it time to confess? The second way we avoid going wrong in this area is we fight lust with the Bible. We fight lust with the Bible. Now, this might seem like a weird one. Why do I say this? And I want to take a a longer run-up to explain this. It is my very deep conviction that the Bible, not just Proverbs, but the whole of it is very clear. Sex is reserved exclusively for the covenant commitment of marriage. And all forms of sex outside of marriage are seen as wrong. Now, I realize as soon as I say that, some people in this room, certainly those listening online, will maybe have their feathers ruffled. Like, Andy, are you having a go? Maybe you have witnessed conversations about sex and sexual ethics get a little bit heated. Who are you to impose those views on me? And I want to explain why I think sex should be reserved for marriage a little later on, but I want to say something on this first. As far as I am aware, when it comes to absolute truth, there are three different types of culture. The first is what I would call a heteronymous culture. Hetero meaning others, nomos meaning laws. Others make the laws. This is when a few like elites at the top set kind of the rules of behavior and code of conduct for thinking for everybody else. This is how you should live and think. Marxism would be a good example of this. And there's many parts of the world where I'm afraid to say this is still very much the case. A second kind of culture when it comes to absolute truth is what I would call an autonomous culture. Auto meaning self, nomos meaning laws. Self makes the laws. This is the privilege of living in the Western world right now. If I'm not hurting anyone, I can choose how I live, thank you very much. I can choose what is right and wrong for me. Now, if someone ever engages me in conversation, you know, Andy, what do you think about sex with all that kind of faith stuff you believe in? One of the first things I might say is, well, what kind of culture do you think we live in right now? Everyone in the West agrees, yeah, we live in an autonomous culture. At which point I might say this, well, if I share my convictions on sex and sexual ethics, are you going to allow me the privilege of my autonomous view? Or are you going to try and switch to a more heteronymous culture where you think, well, who are you to try and impose those views on me? How Puritan, how Victorian? No. My job in showing my views is not to condemn, nor should it be yours to condemn me. If we disagree on this, Or if you have conversations on the back of this talk and you find yourself disagreeing, we don't condemn the other side. We sit down and talk as friends. Heteronymous culture, autonomous culture. But Proverbs actually says there's a third kind of culture. 
is what I would call a theonomous culture. Theos meaning God, nomos meaning laws. There's this kind of recognition that maybe, maybe, maybe there's a better way than the one I figured out for myself. Maybe there are thoughts higher than my thoughts and ways higher than my ways. In fact, I would say this, if I worship a God who sees the world exactly the same way I do, maybe I'm just worshiping a bigger version of me. Actually, it's humility to say, you know, even in this area, maybe I've not got everything right. So I want to come to something, and more importantly, someone better than myself to learn in humility. Maybe I've not got it all figured out. That's one of the main reasons Proverbs' antidote to lust is read the book, love the book, study the book, pay attention to the book, bind it round your neck, write it on your heart, keep on reading. And we do this for a few reasons. Firstly, you can find some profound advice in this book. There's some amazing wisdom to live by. We can avoid going wrong in so many areas if we pay attention to not just Proverbs, but the whole of this book. Let me just give you one example. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 11.22, which says this, like gold in a pig's snout is a beautiful person who shows no discretion. What's that all about? It's a mildly funny and actually slightly insulting proverb about the dangers of choosing your partner simply based on sexual attraction and overlooking the more important quality of character. If you do that, if you simply choose your partner based on sexual attraction, Proverbs says you're like someone who finds a wonderful ring. Like, oh, wow, the ring's so beautiful. It's so gleamy. I love the precious. It's so sparkly. And you miss the fact connected to all that beauty is a big, fat pig. That's what Proverbs says. And in 15 years of doing this church, I have seen this happen so many times, too many times. Someone will come to me and say, I'm dating this person. And, you know, I, I recognize we disagree on these fundamental issues. You know, I recognize they've got some real faults in this area. Like, I really don't like it when they behave like this. But, oh, Andy, the chemistry. Oh, Andy, the attraction. You don't understand. And they make silly decisions to commit long term. They overlook these character weaknesses. And then six months later, they wake up in bed one morning and all they hear is oink, 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 oink. That's what Proverbs warns us about. And actually, 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 there is research to back this up. Uh, coming up on the screen is a graph. This is from a leading atheist psychologist called Jonathan Haidt, who compares companionate love with passionate love. In the early days of a relationship, passions are like, woohoo, off the Richter scale. This guy's not a Christian. He says this. He says, making a long-term decision to commit when your passions are flying, he says, it should not be allowed. He describes it as trying to sign a contract when you are drunk. And yet I've seen it happen so many times. Oh, the passion. No one can maintain that level of emotional intensity indefinitely. And they decide to make a long-term decision to commit. Six months later, that's what happens. But the other thing Jonathan Haidt says is this. The other thing he wants us about, he says, hey, when the passions have cooled, he said many people make a decision at that point, oh, the, the chemistry's gone, so I'm just going to walk away in search of another quick fix. He says, you are in danger. Not a Christian talking. He says, you are in danger of walking away from what could be the most amazing connection with another human being. He says, you want the best kind of life possible. Don't go chasing quick fixes. Companionate love in the long term beats passionate love every single time. This is just one proverb. There are thousands of them. There's wisdom to live by in this book, but there's actually a more important reason we fight Last with this book. Uh, one of my favorite actors right now is Anthony Hopkins. 
came across an interview with him recently where he said when he gets a script for a show or for a movie, he will read it over 200 times, 200 times. He'll unline loads of bits of the script, he'll make notes in the margin. He said, by the time I have read it that many times, I've not only internalized how I am to live in this story, he says, I feel like I know the author. That's why we read this book. It's not actually a list of rules and regulations for life. There's life here. I can get to know the creator of the universe through reading this book. I get to know the author. You see, here's the real reason that we fight lust with this book. It's because of behind every lustful promise is ultimately a lie. Hey, watch pornography. There's no victims in the stuff that you're watching. None at all. Hey, sleep around. You won't hurt yourself in any way, shape, or form. Behind every lustful promise is a lie. You do not fight lies with resistance. Oh, I'll just resist the culture I'm in. You fight lies with the truth. I begin to read and realize, oh, maybe I was made for something better than just physical pleasure. Nothing wrong with physical pleasure, we'll get to that, but maybe I was made for more than that. Not just a better kind of life, maybe a someone. How do we avoid going wrong in this area? We fight pride with humility. Oh, I'm weak. And I so often wear the clothes of my culture and I want to be free. And we fight the lies of lust with truth. And the third way we avoid going wrong in this area is we fight loneliness with connection. And this, for some people, can be with a spouse. For everyone, if they want, it can be with God and with God's people, the church. I came across this quote from a brilliant author called Philip Yancey in his book, Rumors of Another World. He said this, The very word sex comes from a Latin verb that means to cut off or sever. And sexual impulses drive us to unite, to restore somehow the union that's been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within as a longing for union with a parent. Jung diagnosed a longing for union with the opposite sex. The Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. Sex prefigures that union by bringing together body and soul in a kind of wholeness not otherwise known. What Yancey and indeed Freud and Jung are touching on is this. Within each of us, there's this sense of, oh, I need some kind of connection. Something's been severed within. And sex is one of the things we can go grappling after to try and fill that hole. Interestingly, it's been shown that in cities where the leading sports team loses, pornography use skyrockets. Why? Because sport, particularly for men, but actually for men and women, can be one of the things we try and use to fill the gap. Because when my sports team wins, I feel so great and connected to something larger than myself. But oh, when my team loses, oh, I feel this sense of disconnection is somehow heightened. And I go chasing after pseudo-connection rather than real connection. This is one of the main reasons that sex within the covenant commitment of marriage is so important. You see, if I decide to have sex outside of marriage, what I am basically saying to the other person and they are saying to me is, yeah, we have this deep need for connection inside. And I'm going to try and meet that in you in the most intimate way possible. But this connection might sever again in the future. I might walk away from you. You might walk away from me. And what happens is while in the moment sex might feel amazing, in the long term I do damage to myself in the deepest part of who I am. Oh, I need this connection and there's this risk this other person in my life might walk away. That's why sex, which can be amazing, needs to be packaged by this covenant commitment that as I get older and uglier and wrinklier, I've got somebody saying to me, I will not leave you. 
You see, the Bible doesn't hold back on how amazing sex can be. God loves sex. God created sex. It's not like God created Adam and Eve, put him in the Garden of Eden, you know, went off to do something in the kitchen, came back and was like, I did not see that coming. I mean, it's like, (laughs) that's not what happened. God loves sex. He thinks it's amazing. And Proverbs does not hold back. It's quite graphic, actually, on how amazing sex can be. It likens male sexuality to a fountain. May your fountain be blessed. Now, if you think about the metaphor and what the writer is trying to say, it's the kind of picture that makes you blush in church. Sex can be amazing. But hey, Proverbs says, here's the context. Committed relationship. Marriage. But of course, ultimately, sex is only a picture of something altogether better. You see, the best person who ever lived in all of history, the most important person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, he never had sex. Which means it is possible for me to live the fullest life possible and never have sex. Because what I need for that severed connection to be restored is not sex, it is Jesus. It is connection with God himself. Every single person in this room, including and especially myself, is broken and imperfect in this area. No one in this room stands faultless when it comes to sex. And therefore I have kind of incurred exactly what Proverbs warns me about brought it on myself. What I need to have that severed connection restored is not sex, it is Jesus. I want to show you a short video clip to illustrate this. Uh, Many of you will have heard of a guy called Billy Graham, who was one of the world's foremost evangelists. Uh, He passed away earlier this year, aged 99. It's estimated during his life, he preached the good news about Jesus to just short of half the population of the entire world. Isn't that amazing? Well, at his funeral earlier this year, one of his daughters gave this testimony. Uh, I think it speaks for itself, so we'll just play the clip now. I have my my own Billy Graham story, so I'm going to tell you that one. And I've told it many times, and some of you have maybe heard it many times, but it bears repeating because to me it speaks to the essence of who my father was and is. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I floundered. I did a lot wrong. The rug was pulled out from under me. My family thought it'd be a good idea for me to move away, to get a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live near my older sister and her family and near a good church. The pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, you know, they were almost grown. They didn't know what they could, they couldn't tell me what to do. I knew what was best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you slow down? Let us wait to get to know this man. They had never been a single parent. They had never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful, and sinful, I married a man, this man, on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What was I going to do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and my father. It was a two-day drive. Questions swirled in my mind. What was I going to say to Daddy? What was I going to say to Mother? 
What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? You, we, we're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. And let me tell you, you women will understand you don't want to embarrass your father. You really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. <laughs> and many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway, and my father was standing there waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me and he said, welcome home. There was no shame, there was no blame, there was no condemnation, just unconditional love. And you know, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. When we come to God with our sin, our brokenness, our failure, our pain and our hurt, God says, welcome home. And that invitation is open for you. Thank you, and God bless you. One of the reasons I love that story is because Billy Graham was not just showing a little bit of what God is like. He's showing what the church is to be like. I think possibly my favorite proverb is Proverbs 16.6, which says this, through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Every single person in this room, especially me, has been unfaithful in this and every area. And we have brought on ourselves the consequences Proverbs warns us about. We've experienced that severed connection from God. Like, oh, I need, I need this connection back again. And God so wanted this connection to be restored that he sent his one and only son, Jesus. He lived the best of lives. He was tempted in every way and he didn't give in. Only he decided to go to the cross. He took upon himself everything Proverbs warns about. Proverbs 7, he was led like that ox to slaughter at the cross. Proverbs 6, blows and disgrace were his lot. Proverbs 5, at the end of his life, oh, he groaned, my God, my God, why have you left me? And he took all of that. So if I choose to follow him, I can have all those consequences taken from me, placed on him at the cross, so I can have connection restored with the creator of the universe. And it is our primary call as a church to communicate this. For anybody in this room and for everyone we come into contact with, our job is not con to condemn and throw stones. What of, whatever mistakes anyone has made, welcome home. You are utterly loved here. There is a God who loves you more than any of us can ever put into words. He is crazy about you. And that deep sense of a severed connection inside, it can be restored, not through sex, but through Jesus and what he's accomplished at the cross. And so we just want people to know this. Sex is not the answer, Jesus is. How do we avoid going wrong in this area? Which can ruin so many lives. We fight pride with humility. I am weak. And I so often wear the clothes of my culture and I end up becoming a slave and I'm sorry. I want to be free. I want to confess this. I fight the lies of lust with truth. I'm made for not just something, but someone better. And I fight loneliness with connection, with a spouse maybe. But that's only a picture of something better. 
connection with God through Jesus Christ because of the cross that we, the church, are to live out. Uh, maybe the band want to come up. Why don't we all stand to our feet? And um, we're going to just spend most of the rest of our time just worshipping God, which is just expressing our worship and our gratitude for Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. And before we sing, I just want to pray a very simple prayer. That wherever there is a desire in this room for reconnection with God, that God would meet that. I'm not going to expose anyone, but I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer. Maybe you've never followed Jesus before and you're like, I want to do that. I sense that severed connection and I, I want it restored. I want it healed. Maybe this is a moment for you. Maybe you followed Jesus for quite a while, but you know in your heart you've kind of been doing things your own way. And you're like, I, I want to recommit my life to Jesus. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, but it just feels a bit dry and empty inside. Well, God can give you a fresh start. Guilt, shame, hurt, pain can be wiped away because of the cross, because of Jesus. Through his love and faithfulness, our sin gets atoned for. So let me pray. Father, we love you so much. And we want to thank you for sending Jesus. I know as a dad myself, Whenever my children say, Daddy, we love you and we need you, I just want to run to them and embrace them in my arms. Well, our perfect Father in heaven, we want to confess our need of you in this moment. We want to say we love you and we need you. And I want to ask by sending the presence of your Holy Spirit upon us, wherever in the hearts of men and women in this room you see thirst for you, a desire to reconnect with God himself, I pray you would meet that longing in the name of Jesus by the power of your spirit. I pray for many this would feel like a clean start, a fresh beginning. I want to pray that we would know the love of God in this place, not simply something in our heads, but as an experiential reality. Fill this room with your spirit. Fill this room with your love. And help us as your weak, broken children to know there is a daddy who throws his arms open wide and says, welcome home. We love you and we need you. Spirit, come meet with us in this moment, I pray. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.